Certain types of technology are easier to understand for some people than for others, and that's okay. Passion is contagious. It attracts employees and customers. Strong, passionate leadership with clear vision increases employee satisfaction. That then translates to satisfied customers. Developers who make products that build and maintain infrastructure toil to solve problems so their customers can pursue their own desires. Edith Levine, the founder and CEO of Solo.io, shares her zeal for her company's work as well as a belief in her team's competitive nature. Honestly, to say that Solo is a service mesh company is like saying that Amazon is selling book online. That's where we're starting. What we have right now is an amazing team that can do everything. And whatever interesting in this market, we will go and attack because we just want to be the best. I don't know if this is good description, but if you want to know what are we doing in Solo, we're having a blast with technology. Passion helps to teach people about technology. If a person really cares about something, they are more likely to invest their time and energy to understand it and eventually to excel at it. That passion can become contagious and draw in others, first to listen and then hopefully to learn. Adit embodies that excitement as she discusses her team's creation of an API gateway, a mesh network service, and her future plans. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Adit also explains how a constructive, competitive mentality compelled her to found Solo.io. She reveals that she's always been a person led by passion, from playing basketball to competing in the C-suite to founding her own company. Adit chats about how her will to compete inspired her to put together a great team, and it's now guiding her as she supports them to do their best. She also shares the game plan for her company and how her strategy is leading to wins. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have the founder and CEO of Solo.io, Adit Levine. Adit, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, we're excited to have you as well. I think I worked in a similar industry, but before I make that assumption and conclude that, tell our audience, what is Solo.io and what does it do? So I started Solo.io like, like three, four years ago. And what we saw back then in the market is that there is a big kind of like, uh, you know, adoption and people were migrating from monolithic to microservices. So what we recognize in Solo that the biggest problem that people will have is basically the network. Mm. What does it mean? You know, if you have something that is a one binary and now you cut it to small pieces, the question is, how do you assemble them together to compose the application? So that's basically the problem that, that we saw. So what Solo is doing is basically... The way I like to describe it is application networking from edge to mesh. So it's basically trying to solve those problems of observability, security, as well as um, routing and connectivity between, you know, everything that's going inside your data centers and anything that's going inside your cluster, per se, inside your data center. So that's kind of like in the nutshell what we're doing. Uh, but of course, it's a very complex thing. And if people are aware of the terms, it's basically what we're focusing on is, is API gateway as well as service mesh, which is kind of like right now United. So I am from, a, but I did work at a company that previously did this. The company I worked for was named Pureport. It was acquired by Digital Realty Trust. And what we were trying to do was make it easier, as you suggested, for if your application, wherever your 
environment was if you needed a microservice from any one of the public clouds to instantly throw up a network gateway, connect it, get your private data connected up very quickly. Um, if you needed to transfer sunset locations, like there's all different use cases. But the idea was like it was going to be an API driven software tool where anyone could spin up a private secured network as they saw fit. Now, one of the things that I saw at the time, now this, this date is like three years ago, and I'd love to hear how the market has changed, was when we first started selling this service to people, a lot of people kind of didn't understand what they would use it for. They kind of thought to themselves, hey, well, I already have a VPN. I already have connectivity between my data center and the cloud. What, what do I need a tool to be able, or APIs to spin up new networks? I don't understand the use case. And Truthfully, we had a hard time convincing others that there was a use case. It was a bit of a challenge until we finally found data center partners that saw the use case. How has that changed? Is it still that way to you? Are you still running into uphill battle where people don't understand why they need to be able to spin up networks on their own? Or has this changed or is the demand changed? I'd love to hear from you on that. Yeah. No, so honestly, like every customer in Solo is an inbound customer, which means that they wow. come to us. And we seriously have 100, right? So you will see, and, and honestly, like we're exploding, you know, we're exploding in terms of how much, how many customers we have. So obviously the explanation has been done. So now let's explain what, you know, what, what are they looking for? Because I think it's really, really important. So I think two things that is very important. The first one is API gateway. So by everybody moving to microservices, that means that in the, what you need is most of the people are adopted Kubernetes as a platform to run those microservices. And when you're adopting those, those you know, a platform, you need some ingress. You need something to basically be this point to kind of like have this request or coming into your services. And right now, you know, the one that was extremely famous was maybe a Gen X as an ingress or something like that. But there was a huge, as I said to you, like all this, if you're looking at API gateways in kind of like an industry, there's nothing new about it. As you said, that was a while ago. That's an industry that's really what. But I think that what this industry did not do very well is kind of like continuing being innovative. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at the technology that are running, there's something like Apple Geocong or Nginx. This is a technology that what, it's like at least 10 years old, if not more, versus what you see right now in the data center, what we're doing, right? It's all the crazy microservices, right? Very innovative, scaling craziness and so on. The only thing that changed in that market of the API gateway right now, the way I see that is the marketing. Right? They're saying that right now they're an API for, um, you know, the, the API gateway for uh, microservices. So that's exactly what we started. And again, the reason we started there is because we saw that what's really going to happen is that everybody will run service mesh, but we knew this market is not going to be ready. As you said, we need to educate it. So what we did, we took this building block, the proxy called Envoy, and said, how can we take that piece, which we know that is extremely important and will on, right? It will be the building block for all networking application in everywhere and basically distract the market of API. So that's what we did. We started with taking the Envoy proxy and basically build an API gateway, the API gateway that you want to run, right? It's very innovative. It's very cloud native, declarative, and eventually consistent and so on. So that's where we started, if it makes sense. But we kind of like piggyback on this amazing marketing that Google and the big guys doing about service mesh. That's actually <laughs> helping us. They educated the market. Of course, we were part of the people that educate the market. And when the market said, yeah, I understand service mesh is something extremely important that I need to have, they basically discovered that we are the best. So they came to us. Right. That, that was basically their So one of the drivers we thought would be true that would create more demand for being able to spin up networks on demand 
was this idea of multi-cloud, which a lot of companies, a lot of forecasts, multi-cloud's been talked about for a while. Now, at the time, the reality was there wasn't actually that much multi-cloud happening. People had access maybe to AWS and maybe they had access to GCP, but they weren't actually using any services between the two. Like they just basically used this silo, they used that silo, and maybe they did disaster backup between the two and they said, we're multi-cloud, right? The tools didn't have to talk to each other. Now, we had a hypothesis that that was going to change, that people were now going to, because tools like this would enable best of breed service access. Oh, you want to run big data tables? You want Maybe you want to use BigQuery. Oh, you want to send data somewhere else because of one of the Microsoft products, you can do that as well. Are you seeing that now? Has like, are we here or are still people still isolated to single cloud? And if not, what are, I'd love to hear some of the use case demands that are now driving the next wave of demand. Because you kind of mentioned before, like the big clouds educated the public. So that's step one, education. Step two is utilization. Like people have to find significant use cases to, to say like, this is useful to me. Yeah. I'd love to hear what your philosophy is on multi-cloud and also what is driving some of the adoption. Yeah. So I think you are honestly, like you, you describe it very well. What we see is the same thing. So we still see oh. people saying multi-cloud is the thing. Everybody want to be a multi-cloud. They don't like the lock, locking into one provider, but honestly, the only thing that they're using is disaster recovery and HA. <laughs> so that hasn't changed. Yeah, that doesn't change dramatically. I don't think any necessity, we have a lot of customers. None of them is really using it as a multi-cloud. Maybe, maybe we have one customer that is huge um, and has 60 data centers and thousands of instances of STL. I would say that they had that. Yeah. But most of them, but again, they're just taking the same application and basically, you know, put it everywhere. They're not really, you know, leveraging, you know, specifically here you will do this, but then that's what called the other one. That's less happening. That's what we see. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think it's still the dream. It's not I don't know, <laughs> the reality. Maybe. So that's not here yet. That's not here yet. <laughs> yeah. So what is what is the current use cases? What are customers trying to unlock? Because it's one thing to want an API enabled tool to set up networking, but usually, you know, like any other software, unless you have an actual use case for it, it'll it'll fade to the wayside. It's a nice to have, it's not a need to have, but it sounds like you guys are a need to have. So what are people doing with this service? Yeah, so as I said, the first one that basically coming, usually they're starting in the edge or the API gateway, the thing, the way they need it, they're usually all moving to Kubernetes. They wanna run API gateway that would be as innovative as what they're running there. We wanted the microservices and so on. That's exactly what our first product is doing, Blue Edge. Mm -hmm. So that's where they're starting. They need an ingress somehow. They need these things to come. It's based on Envoy, which is the best proxy that exists today in the market. So API Dreaming, very, very innovative. That's the thing that they want first. But usually they're not finishing there. And the reason is because now once you're kind of like feeling comfortable with microservices, you will have a lot of replica of them. You will run them at scale. You will have multi-clusters of them, right? What you will discover is that once a request coming into the data center, it's kind of like impossible to know where it is. <laughs> like you don't know where it's running. You don't know what's going on. If you have a problem, it's like, um, you know, some, there is a tweet that someone said that it's a murder mystery. <laughs> There's something wrong. You really don't even know where to see. So I think that one of the three problems that service mesh is solving, which is a very important, is that once this call is happening and hit one of the service, where did it go from now? What's going on? Mm. And I think it's attacking three things, as I said. Number one, you need to make sure that you will be able to move between those microservices and compose the request. Second of all, observability. Big, big request by a customer. So they want to see, you know, what's going on. Where's the logs, right? You have a problem. Where is the log? Which, which microservice replicates it? So all those questions, I think it's where 
people need the observability and service mesh is giving them very, very good visibility inside, kind of like zoom to the request path and everything that happening there. And the last one, as I said, is uh, security, mainly MTLS, the one encryption between those microservices to make sure that no one mm-hmm. coming in the middle. So again, that's what they need. Again, you will not do it if you have one application with six microservices, of course, right? Yeah. But our customers usually, just for example, has between 80 to 100 clusters in production. Each of them has an instance of a service mesh and they need to manage that. And now, as I said to you, you can, it's going all the way to a thousand of them. And now the question is, you know, if you're putting one service mesh, it will give you this functionality. That's great. If you're one, you can actually feed the configuration. What's happening if you have thousands? And that's a, one of the things that our product is doing. It's basically, it's helping you with a service mesh, as well as what's called the management plan to configure and, and basically orchestrate those service mesh. How do they talk to each other? You know, how do you configure each of them? How do you upgrade? How do you install them? And so on and so on. So that's basically a, basically an orchestration for service mesh, if that makes sense. No, that is sweet. Uh, hearing, hearing you describe all the use cases right now and what people are using it for. I liked how you just said, said like the data comes in, it's a murder mystery. No one knows where it came from. <laughs> you got to solve that. I mean, that, cause that is, cause that is definitely a truth of a lot of the guests that we have. They talk about different CTOs all talk about the same things, which is they want to enable their developers to develop faster, which means they are going to be able to set up their own infrastructure to build their own test applications. Usually that is what needs to happen, even if it's at the feature level, because it's so easy now to spin up services to then say like at the feature level, this works. I can be push it to prod to be part of the bigger product. And so they're all looking for ways to make this more feasible. Sounds like this is a, this is part of that toolkit that makes it more feasible to build test applications, test fast, validate, ship it. Yeah. And more than this, I mean, think about it. Every time that we're basically doing a new technology, reopening ourselves to a huge, huge challenges, right? I mean, yeah. So yeah, you can go faster. You can do all the stuff that you just described. But then the question is that what's going on in operation day two? How do you, what's happening when something is wrong? Got it, right? All this question is exactly what we come to solve. Yeah, makes total sense. Now, if we were to take a look at your, you know, we looked you up obviously on LinkedIn. We tried to figure out your your track record. So you were at Dell EMC, CTO, cloud management division and office of the CTO. It looks like you left there in 2017. What created, I guess, the impetus, the spark for you to say, hey, I want to do this? Because you must have, did you see it in the marketplace? Like, hey, this is going to be like a big demand. Hey, I see an opportunity. Or was it just more of a passion that you just wanted to build this? I'd love to hear what, because, you know, you're already at arguably at the one of the highest levels of you can achieve in your career. And then, so what gave you the spark to say, hey, I want to do this? Yeah, honestly, it started a little bit different. So most of my life, I worked in a startup company. Yeah. And when I last, when I, I left the last one, I basically said to myself, okay, I definitely want to start one. I think I learned enough. I saw successful. I saw failure. I can feel that, I, that I'm really good at. And what I was really, really good always is, um, you know, I, I don't know, like my, my boss in EMC, the, the, Bill C, the, the CTO um, of all Dell right now, but it was the CTO of, um, of uh, EMC. His name is John, uh, John Ross. Basically, like I said, that you can describe, describe me as like, you can lock around a door in, in a room, give her that code because I'm addicted. <laughs> and it's like an IP machine. I'm really good. I'm understanding the market really, really well. I know what, I can explain that. I just know what will happen before everybody. And I know how to get there very fast before everybody. So once I left the last company, startup company that I was, it, everybody told me, you need to open your own company. But I felt that, you know, technology-wise, it's not my problem, but am I mature enough to open my own startup? And can I be a leader? Mm. And that's something that I wasn't clear at. So what I decided to do is that I was, I'm based in Boston, Massachusetts. I had to because my husband is a professor here. 
So I had to basically stay here and I tried to figure out if I can go and learn from someone that's working in a big company, because honestly to God, I didn't work ever in a startup, in a big company. So I wanted to see uh, how is that going to be on the other side? For instance, the company that acquiring companies, or how does it work? Our organization is working on that side. And I thought that they would learn a lot and that's exactly what happened. So I went to EMC, I worked for John, who, you know, only phrases, this, this is brilliant. And learn a lot from him, but also learn how it's to be in a big organization, how it's working, what is good, and a lot of the stuff that are bad. <laughs> how to be, you know, understand what is driven decision in the market and so on. And I think that once, you know, after Dell got, got a, the merge with EMC, you know, John asked me to stay until its end. But then when its end, I felt comfortable enough to do that. And in EMC, I learned a lot. Like, for instance, I worked as a CTO of the cloud management division, and we created a dojo for cloud founders. So I worked a lot with Pivotal, but I also had my own kind of like advanced development group. And we did an open source project that was relatively successful about Unicornal, Unicorn Kernel. It's called Unique. And I worked a lot in the open source community, which touched me a lot, right? I went to conferences, I talked, I met everybody, and I saw Kubernetes, I worked a lot with Kubernetes. And honestly, after that, I felt that it's time, yeah. right? So like, I went and I started solo. So when I started solo and I got the money, honestly, to God, I think that I, I'm almost sure that I, that I actually pitch on serverless. And honestly, it wasn't matter what I was pitching on. What was important is that, you know, to get the money, right? So I basically <laughs> needed to pitch something that I knew that they, they're looking yeah. for. And then when I got the money, I looked at the market, I said, okay, now what we need to do? And then it was very clear that this migration is happening. And in the beginning, I wanted to attack service mesh itself. I said, that's what I'm going yeah. to do. But it was also really clear to me that there's not going to be any money in this ecosystem for the next three to four years. So I said, okay, I can't really come to my investor and say, in three, four years, we're going to be a <laughs> So I said, okay, what can I do right now that will make my team extremely excited? when service mesh will be better there, but it's something that I can sell right now. And that's when I took the proxy as this piece and basically put it in an API gateway. And honestly, to God, most likely you're using your product right now when you're using, you know, your card, you know, your, 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 your credit card or when you're using, yeah. you know, buying a phone and like we seriously everywhere right now. So it's really exciting. Yeah. So, I mean, that's really cool. I'm listening to you tell the story and I'm piecing it together timeline. I'm like, okay, so she goes to big company. She gets big company experience. Check. She says, I, and her peers say, Hey, you can start a company. She's like, check. She says, what am I going to start? Well, I need to start something that I think is this check, get raised money. But then I see another market opportunity. Let's pivot and go to there. Check <laughs> like that. So it wasn't, you know, it's a, it's a unique thing because it sounds, I mean, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like the, the real catalyst was you just wanted to start your own company because you came to the problem to solve. There's no question about it, but you didn't really have a problem. It doesn't sound like you knew exactly what problem you were going to solve when you first got started. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, as I said, I'm really good. And like, if I want to find a, an idea, I know that I can do this very well. So I wasn't too worried about that. I think that the reason I wanted to start a company is because it's not because I wanted to start a company. It's because honestly, like I felt that I can do better. Yeah. Like I felt that working in a company, like I worked in one company that was acquired by VMware, had a blast there, dynamic op, really. But then, you know, I moved. And since then I was kind of like looking for the place that I want to work, that it would be something like that. So honestly, I just felt that, you know, I learned a lot from this career of what frustrated me, what was I happy about, what I was really happy about, and basically put all of this in solo. So the way solo is working, the culture in solo is totally different than other places. 
First of all, uh, it's not my company, it's our company. Okay. And what I'm saying is that I will, you know, I'm, I'm personally, most of my career was frustrated. <laughs> my style. <laughs> Number one, I felt that I'm pretty smart and sometimes even smarter than my boss, which was really bothering me, right? I wanted to learn from someone. And I felt that the person that above me not always can teach me. Yeah. That's number one. And number two, I felt that a lot of the time they're making the wrong decision. So it took me a lot of time to understand that. Yeah. It's not that they're making the wrong decision. It's just, I don't have all the data. If I will look in the market and I actually get all the data, right? If they will tell me everything, probably they may, you know, most of the people are smart enough to make the right decision if they have all the data in front of them. So, you know, something that for instance, in solar is very, very drastic. First of all, is the best people is the management. I'm not, you know what I mean? They have to be the best because I want the people to want to inspire working for them. So you mean on a skill level, like yeah. the, like if I'm a manager of a team, like if I'm in DevOps, I got to be the best at DevOps. If I'm in charge of security team, I got to be, I got to be great at security. Right. Right. Because I want people to want to come work for you. Yeah. And if I'm putting someone yeah. that is okay, you know, you know, how it is. someone told me that you bring a A plus team, they will hire A plus people you hire, you bring in B plus, you know, they will bring, they will hire C plus because they are uncomfortable with <laughs> other stuff. So you definitely want this team to be very strong. So that's number one, right? And number two that is really important is I'm never going to come to someone and say to him, hey, here's what I need you to do. Never. Yeah. Here's what I'm going to say. Here's what I know. Based on my data, this is what Google doing. This is what LinkedIn is doing. This is why I think we should, you know, this is what, what I saw those guys doing in the open source. That's what happened. There was this quality piece. This person is going to do this, but this is what the other one wants. Based on all of this data, the technology, the market, stuff that are less comfortable, like, you know, the politics, all of this information, here's what I think we should do. What do you think? Right. And then we will discuss. And I have to say that that's working like a jump. The people, when they're working in so they know why they're doing it and how they're doing it. And they are smart about that. And they are hungry to solve that problem because they understand why they're doing it. It's motivated them. So I think this is a unique approach that I didn't see a lot before. And I'm very happy that Insola has that. And if you're looking at Solo, you will see the people is not leaving the company. Because as I said to you, you know, I think that, that in Amazon, they're saying that they are customer obsessed. Yeah, customer obsessed. I would say that I'm employee obsessed. And the reason is because there is nothing more important to me than my employee. I want them to be, you know, happy and to enable them. That's how I see that. If someone leaving, I fail, right? And the reason I'm not worried about the customer, because honestly, if your if your 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 employee are so happy, the customer is happy too. Yeah. Because those guys care, and it's part of their company, and they will do everything to make that successful. So you're kind of like getting it as kind of like a second order. So to me, it's like my people, honestly, like everybody is solid, working solo are so solid. They can work everywhere. They're getting offers every time, and they chose to be here, and they're not leaving because my job is to make them happy, and that means everything. Like. Paying them well, make sure that they can work on interesting stuff, teach them well, challenge them, make sure that they're not bored. And all this stuff, I think, I think that that's the reason that they're not even, I'm pretty excited about it. <laughs> no, it sounds like it. I mean, the way I think of it is, like, is when you're a develop, when you develop tools for developers, the opportunity is endless because it's just, because consumer products, because like I always think about this, like consumer products, it's very hard to predict what people will like. Right. But developers are constantly getting roadblocked constantly. I want to figure something out. I can't figure it out. I want to do something. Can't execute it. Right. And so when I think of making tools for developers, it seems like a very logical thing because you yourself are, a, is, 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 are, are, do you still, are your hands on the code still? Do you still develop and engineer? No, not, not anymore. I'm, I'm very, very, I know the, the architecture in details. I know exactly how it works in the details, but I'm not looking at code anymore. I'm almost <laughs> at one of time. 
I wish it could. <laughs> But uh, I'm very in the details of what and how and why and the, everything, right? I'm very involved. I'm basically still running the engineering team right now. No, that's awesome. So, you know, you're, you're a developer tool and you're working with developers who are constantly using your product to, you know, unlock services you mentioned before to develop their applications and move their companies or move their products forward. So that gives you a unique perspective on the next wave of problems as well. Where do you see, <laughs> I love, you know, you don't have to go, obviously you got this, you, you're working on solutions certainly, but what are some emerging problems or opportunities you're starting to see in this, in the marketplace in regards to what developers need? Because, you know, every, every guest we have on IT Visionaries is always working on something groundbreaking. Yeah. Right? We all know that, right? But like in order for what they want to come true to happen, usually there's some type of infrastructure that needs to be in place for what their visions need to be. Yeah. So. You know, and you're on the you're more on the infrastructure side, and I'm putting words in your mouth. Right? Who knows? You're probably maybe spinning up new services that I don't even know about. But give us an idea of where do you see what what is the next thing do you think that developers and development teams are going to need to unlock to really advance their products, applications, businesses, whatever they're working on. So it's a good question. So let's first of all, like I'm a big book, like I really like I'm talking a lot with customers, and you know we have this very different approach in Solo. Basically, we are communicating to customers and working with them and make them successful on Slack. So each of our customers is a Slack channel. Yeah. And that's giving a lot of, you know, interaction between us, the engineering, the field engineering <laughs> to those customers. So we're hearing a lot. Honestly, I think that there is the request that customer asks for, right? Which I think yeah. we should listen and we're building it and it's very important. But there's also the innovation and innovation is different, right? The customer will not come and tell me, you know, I think Ford said it before, right? When he come and ask people, you know, what do you need? They're always going to tell him a stronger horse. They will never say we want a car, right? Yeah. So same thing I'm kind of like thinking about it. There is this kind of like great channel that coming for the market and we need to do this because that's customers running in production. That's what they need. We need to give them. But besides that, there is where to push. Where, where can we take it? What can we think about that they didn't even know that they need yet? Yeah. And I think that for that, I see a few things. So first of all, in general, what we're doing when we're using service mesh and API get, right? We're basically abstracting the network. That's basically what we're doing, right? We're taking, we're saying, look, don't put it on the services itself. It's too complex. You don't ensure that everybody, you know, you kind of like embedded a tooling, a tooling and operation code inside your microservices. Don't do that. Abstract that, right? Do put it in a proxy next to it. Make sure that you will be able to declaratively change that. So that's basically, basically what it is, service mesh and API get, right? When you abstract the network now, Basically, think about it. There is everything that we're doing is basically going on the network. Yeah. So we can know any API calls. We know if there is a problem. We can see a lot of stuff. So I think that what we build right now is a platform. And in this platform, there is a lot of stuff we can do. Example, we can do chaos engineering, right? We can do a fault injection and kind of like create chaos engineering gas system. We can do a lot of debugging tools, right? Of, you know, oh, let's record these things that happen in production. If everything is good, we're just going to toss it. But if something wrong, let's kind of like take this recording and run it, you know, attaching the debugger or something and make sure what's happening. So that's an example. I think that generally the thing that, in my opinion, the future will be is that there's three things that I think in the market that are going to be very, very strong this year. Number one is WASM, WebAssembly. Web and WebAssembly in general is ability to um, extend stuff, let's say dynamically extend the binaries. Um, a lot of people using it for the website, right? You want a better technology that will run faster than JavaScript, but you want to make sure that it will be very secure and not going to take your, your, your browser down, right? Yeah. And it's make, again, performance and so on. Uh, we, we generally took with Google together actually this WASM ID and put it inside a proxy. 
So now we can extend the proxy and our customer can basically customize it to whatever they want. So I think that's something that is very important. The other thing that I think it's very important is eBPF. And eBPF in general is the, you know, operating system, like the, what I learned in my career is that as long as you're putting the solution as low in the stack as you can, it's the most efficient. That's the way it should be there. But sometimes you can't do that, right? You can't go so low. Mm. So what do you do? You know, you improvise, right? Maybe you're doing it on layers. You know, you're going higher on the stack to solve it. But ideally, you will want to solve it as soon, as closest to the hardware as you can. If you can solve it in the hardware, even better. So if you're looking at eBPA and the operator system in general, it's very hard to innovate there. And the reason is because if you're looking at the market, you know, you know what we are running right now as an operator system generally is something that was probably upstream 10 years ago, right? It's very hard to put something in Linux upstream. So I think that what eBPF is bringing to this market is the ability to basically innovate it. And eBPF is basically the ability to hook code to your operator system on events and basically run your custom code. So now you can do crazy stuff. I think that's huge, huge potential. I'm very excited about that. The last one that I see catching up really, really well is GraphQL. And that's what we're hearing from our customer. You know, before that, you know, people mentioned that. Now every call from our customer, what about GraphQL? What about GraphQL? What about GraphQL? <laughs> so I think this is a very thing that catching up, you know, and I think that that's an interesting problem that I don't think there is a good solution in the market yet for that. All right. So now I'm, because I've not heard too much about this. What is GraphQL? A query language for your API. Exactly, exactly. So what does it exactly? Uh, so the idea is very simple. Right now, when you're actually putting a lot of those microservices, you have a lot of APIs. In the nutshell, right now, if you wanted to create a UI for it or front end, usually every time that you want to get something for those services, the front end engineer need to come to basically the back end engineer and said, hey, I need you to expose that, right? Mm -hmm. It's pretty annoying. And every time they need to communicate and it's very slow and so on. <laughs> the idea with GraphQL is basically say, look, what if we will basically expose everything on those services, right? And give the UI, UI person basically the ability to QL it, right? Basically query language that. And basically when that request is going to come, what the result of it, the resolver of it, will know how to go and where you need to patch the data from. So assuming it's kind of like a work, in the way I'm looking at it, it's like a workflow. You can come a request that you're saying, I want to get, I don't know, all the customers that their salary, you know, all the employee that their salary is about 100, right? But assume that you have an HR, HR or finance that know about the salary and there is HR, let's say, that know about the employee. How do you match that? So what you need to do in that case is basically come to a backend engineer and say, hey, yeah. I need your help. I need to do this. Maybe I need to do two round trip. With GraphQL, you basically can make it very simple with one kind of like query language, you know, give me all the salary of people that are one by under and he would know how to go basically to here, take all the employee, the employee, then go, you know, take all the salaries and kind of like match them and tell me all the results. So it's very easy to, the, to, to create a, a front end back. So is that stored on that's stored on uh, client side then, right? Is that because it's so all the data I collect. So if I'm a company and I, I got data everywhere, right? From different products and services. I add GraphQL on now all my data fields or data points are now open for front end engineers that say, hey, I need access to X, Y or Z. It's basically another layer, layer that yeah. the engineers is not going to go directly right now to those services, they're going to go always to your GraphQL server. Yeah. And they will say, I want you to get all of this. And then your GraphQL know 
what does it mean for him to do? Oh, what you ask me is all those salary. I know that the resolver will tell me that I need to go to this one, return this, maybe do something, then go there and do this. And you as a UI person, just basically QA, that's it. Just saying, that's what I want. Go get it. I can see 100% the interest in that because I'm thinking, when, once you started describing the interplay between a front-end engineer and a back-end engineer, I was like, I've been at companies. That's exactly the problem. Yeah. The person's like, I need, oh, you should be able to show this. Like, well, I need, you know, I need ID to open that. I don't get to open that gateway. Right, 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 right. Exactly. So I think that that's something that people are really excited about it. And of course, now the question is, what is the next thing there? Yeah. The next thing there is that you have all those microservices, right? Do you want one? GraphQL, most likely what you would want, you would create what's called a sub schema. You want a small one for each microservices and now you need to federate it somehow. How do you do that? Yeah. Right? So there's this notion of stitching and federation. So it's a complex market, right? Because there's there's going to be companies that still, there's going to be certain things that they're never going to want exposed. Like they're just, they're, that, that they won't want GraphQL to be able to access. Right, right, right. So I think <laughs> this, is, this is extremely exciting. And as I said, I mean, there is a lot of tooling, but also I, I believe that we can, there is interesting stuff that we can do in order to make it better the way it's, it's, it's right now operated in the market. Oh man. Listen, the way you describe stuff, by the way, you were saying like you have a passion, <laughs> very, very passionate that comes through in your voice very, very clearly. Uh, we've had very engineering centric guests on our show before that it's not clear if they like engineering. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when I when we talk to you, I feel like you. I definitely get like you are very excited about solving the next wave of problems, and I, and I love that passion, and energy in your voice. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Indeed, this is where we ask you questions outside of the realm of work, so our audience gets to know you a little bit better. Are you ready? Yeah, go for it. All right, so we. Got word that you owe, that you played professional basketball. Is that accurate? Yeah, I was. I was. I was in Israel, <laughs> not here. But all right. Well, all right. Where? All right. So Israel is where you played. Well, I got to hear it. You played for how many years? Just tell us a little bit about playing pro basketball in Israel. For a lot, a lot. So, I mean, I think I started playing since I was like first grade or something. I really like that. And I'm a very competitive person. I don't know if it's showy or <laughs> very competitive. Uh, yeah, we can tell. I can tell that you got some competitive juice for sure. I like to win. So, yeah, no, I started working and playing very, very young, you know, with boys. Just was having a fun, you know, every time, you know, I went back from school. And the second thing that I was doing is going to the court and playing with, with boys back then. And then after it, I started like playing in a real team in Israel in seventh grade, I think. And then, you know, quite quick promoted to be, you know, in the, in the professional league. And I was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, honestly, like, you know, I was in high school and I was in a special high school that was a special class for, for, you know, athletes and people that, that are sport people. And, you know, we, we flew all over the world and play and it was a blast. It was a lot of fun and made a lot of good friends. <laughs> so, when did you get involved more in engineering? I mean, I saw that you went in your, at university study, you studied in, uh, computer science, but when did you start getting involved in engineering? Were you, did you like that always when you were a little kid or does that come, did that interest come later? Yeah, no, when I was, yeah, my passion was basketball back then. So I didn't, <laughs> you know, I didn't do computer. I did like math, like math was like, you know, there was a people that like to do, I don't know, something in, in, in happened, you know, on the free time I was taking some math, you know, question and having fun with this. It's really logic. So I really understand that. 
But when I finished the high school, I needed to make sure, you know, in Israeli, everybody going to the army, yep. having a basketball player, I didn't need to do much there, but I still were there. So when I finished, I needed to decide what I want to go learn. And I honestly, to God, did not know. Right. So, you know, all my brother and sister, they were in Israel, in Israel army in computer. So they were already, you know, working and having fun. And I kind of said, well, I don't know, but let's try. Why not? And then I basically just teach myself. It was just in the dot com. So I basically find a job pretty easy and just before even going to the university, just worked and got quite a lot of money. But then, you know, my father, who didn't, you know, my, my parents did not finish high school. So they kind of like, you know, you have to go to the university. You have to go to college. <laughs> so I did, did went to college and um, yeah, it was it was a blast. I, I learned that I actually learned computer science and biology. So it was really even fun because I had those two. And but yeah, I started working on it. Honestly, to get in the beginning, I wasn't that passionate about it because I was doing a lot more like front end stuff, you know, dot com, everybody built website. It wasn't that interesting to me. But I think that when I came here to Boston and I started working in Dynamic Op, that's when I find my passion. And I swear to God, I fell in love. Like I remember me going to an interview and said, oh my God, that's what I want to do. And I was working like, you know, since then, you know, as I said to you, people is, I don't know, watching good TV, reading a book. I'm reading an article about, about cloud. I'm, I'm so passionate about that. So I think, yeah, yeah. All right. So then when it comes to having fun away from work, besides reading about cloud, okay, I don't believe, <laughs> what else do you like doing? Uh, so first of all, you know, my life is pretty full. I have three kids said so I need to take care of. Yeah, me too. I got three kids too. But, but yeah, you're busier than me though, because I, I, I know that. <laughs> no, no, I, you know. Three kids, you know, uh, we are, we, don't forget that most of, like, you know, honestly, to get the reason I knew that I can open my own startup is because our life, you know, weren't that easy. We had three little kids uh, and, you know, we basically didn't have any help because we are here. Most of my family, all my family is basically in, in Israel. Mm -hmm. So, you know, no help whatsoever. Three little, very, very little kids. Uh, and two of them weren't, you know, one of them is on the spectrum and so on. So it took a lot of energy for me. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, after raising them and make that works, I said to myself, I don't think there's something I cannot do, right? I mean, how, how, how hard can it be now, right? <laughs> I think that that's what passion me. So I have three kids that are awesome and I'm very excited about them. Uh, we just got a new puppy. I think we talk about it a little bit yep. more. So that's just me. <laughs> He's putting a lot of my attention. I still playing a little bit basketball, not too much. I think that that's basically my word. I don't have a lot of free time anyway. So it's not that <laughs> I, have, I have time to feel. Well, indeed, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come join us today on Nineteen Visionaries. Thanks for sharing your career, what you guys are up to at Solo.io. And of course, thank you for sharing with our audience to let us know that, hey, listen, if you play professional basketball in Israel, you can still become a technological software founder your story is awesome. I love your passion. The way you talk about solving these problems just fires me up. I don't know what you're talking about half the time, but I'm just saying, like, if I did, I'd be like, I want to work for you. Yeah. Now, there's one thing that I want to say, if you don't mind, before I'm leaving. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So I think you asked me a good question in this show. It's what is Solo doing? And I think that, you know, I can explain you. I explain you, right? But honestly, to God, to say that Solo is a service mesh company is like saying that Amazon is selling book online. Yeah. That's where we're starting, right? It's a small part, right? Exactly. What we have right now is an amazing team that can do everything. And whatever interesting in this market, we will go and attack. Because, you know, we just want to be the best. So I don't know if this is good description, but if you want to know, you know, what are we doing? And so we're we having a blast with technology. 
So yeah, it sounds like you haven't even really started, yeah, right? Because yeah. if the Amazon started as a book company, they weren't going to be a cloud. Like I don't know, did they know they were going to be a cloud company? Of course not. They didn't know the cloud existed. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, they're like, we're selling books. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so. Yeah, it will be exciting. No, I'm looking forward to seeing how the company develops over the next few years. Who knows what you guys are going to build yeah. uh, with this problem-centric mindset you guys have. And it sounds like very limitless in where you can go and develop engineer solutions. It'll be exciting to watch the journey. All right, thanks so much.